we had a collaboration with some Chinese com uh, Chinese uh, scientists. Here we have a vaccine. What is the problem? Get over it. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15%. I hope that it can occur in a, a civil way. And I, I, I mean civil in a special way, I, peaceful. The biggest question, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decade, will be what to do with all these useless people. I just see the need for such a dialogue, and I see the need for action. I see the need for a great reset. We are 1,239 days into 14 days to flatten the curve. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Johnny Anderson alongside the fan favorite. You know him, you love him. The long lost prodigal son has returned for the week. Marty Foster. Marty, how are you? Oh, I'm very well. Thank you for asking. One more show to go. Getting a little bit fatigued, but other than that, I'm 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 doing very well, thank you. It's not raining today. Today is almost sunny. It is god-awful in terms of weather over here. It has been blowing cold rain. It just It's almost like gale force winds for the last 16 hours. It's just, it's terrible. It's absolutely terrible. Well, this is not August weather. The um, the venue that we're performing the, uh, the play in is um, a 16th century long barn that has been converted into a theater and wedding venue. And it's a very old building and it's listed and protected and the roof leaks a bit. Now we've had more or less constant rain for the last few days and it's become uh quite interesting bearing in mind that the play involves some sword fighting with real swords and the roof leaks and there's the odd pool of water on the stage and people can you know come a cropper uh in a puddle of water whilst lunging at each other with long swords and uh bastard swords and daggers so yeah it's it's been living on the edge the last few days quite good Sounds fun. It sounds uh, sounds very um, intriguing. You know, you just go in there and you, you get a get a show and and possibly watch somebody have an accident by slipping in a puddle on the stage that wasn't supposed to be there five minutes before. Well, one of the things I've found most intriguing about getting to know this play, which is it's Shakespeare, but it's a number of Shakespeare's plays pushed all together covering a 30-year period, uh, which we call in history, the War of the Roses. One of the, or the character I play is William Delapole, Duke of Suffolk. And he originally um, was romantically involved with Margaret of Anjou. But once he realized that he could use her because she was a strong and intelligent woman, he offered her as a bride to um, Henry VI, who was a weak and, and rather ineffectual king, just prime for manipulation. Uh, and indeed, that's, that's what happened to a great degree. So the whole thing is political intrigue in the court of England at that time with murders, with blackmail, with puppets. And it's, it's just so resonant of everything that's happening today. Indeed it is. I like your shirt, by the way. Marty's wearing it. Well, actually, would you like to tell the listener what you're wearing? Well, it's it's a T-shirt I was bought by my sister. Uh, they also lived out in the Middle East for a while at the same time as I did. Uh, it's rather irreverent because it's got uh, the words in Arabic and then underneath in English, which just says infidel, which I guess is non-believer. I, I only wear it about the house. I don't wear it out. I don't want to offend anyone unnecessarily. But believe you me, when I do want to offend someone, they know they've been offended. You know, if uh, Bruce were here, he'd be saying, oh, no, I'd be wearing that all over the place. But he wouldn't because he is a believer. Remember, it's three Abrahamic religions. That is true, yes. So he, he could not call himself uh, an infidel or that is true. The, the, 
The word in Afrikaans that they use is kafir, which also means non-believer. It's a bad term with a, a you know a, a bad meaning when, when it's used in in South Africa. But you know, I, I am a non-believer in in most things these days. My cynicism far outweighs my trust. Well, speaking of um, your uh, your cynicism, you said that you were on Facebook before you came in today, and I told you, you started to tell me, and I stopped you, and I said, no, 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 no. I said, tell me on recording because it makes for a better conversation. So well, what are you, first of all, what are you still doing on that horrid platform, I have to ask? Um, because I warned question. you about this time and again, every week, it seems like. But good question, well asked. Yeah. Um, the first thing I did was actually yesterday. I got bored and I hadn't posted anything for a while. And I was flicking through my photographs that I have on this phone. And from the Imperial War Museum in London, I had um, uh, a picture that I'd taken of the spitting image puppet of Margaret Thatcher, who's wearing a man's suit with a, a big spitting image head, you know, foam head. And I put at the top of the post, can anyone name me a serving politician that they trust? Go, I'll wait. And I waited and I waited. And it took seven hours before someone finally said, um, what about Andrew Bridgen? And I said, yeah, I was waiting for that one. He's about the only one I can name. Now, of my however many hundreds of friends I have on Fastbook, some of them are family friends, some of them are people I've just met, mere acquaintances, but most people on my list are people that I have met face-to-face and know. And normally I get quite a lot of response with anything I post, but with this one question, it took seven hours before someone could say, Andrew Bridgen as naming a politician, serving politician that they actually trust. So that that was one thing. And I, I, th- I think that's indicative of, of how things have become and the state global politics is in. Um, unless you are a brainwashed, um, dyed-in-the-wool, partisan-style you know, style voter, you can't trust anyone in Parliament at the moment. Uh, and... The one person mentioned was Andrew Bridgen, and he's still very active, especially on Twitter or X, as it's now called, talking about excess deaths and putting stuff out there. And I believe he's about to make another speech shortly. So uh, we'll we'll keep our eyes out for that. He is one of the uh, the rather uh, well, he is more one of the more outspoken ones, uh, I have to say. And he I think I kind of, you know how I am with trusting politicians, I just don't. But in terms of him, he did something that I appreciated. He went on the uh, the BBC to do an interview, and it was one of those where they, they meet in like a hotel conference room or something, and they, they do their little talk. He is explaining all of this stuff that he's promoting as, as far as his standpoint on COVID and everything and, and everything with the mandates and, and how it was wrong. And what's actually been done as far as uh, vaccine injuries and, and things of that nature. And you could see within that interview that the BBC are trying to steer him in a certain direction, right? They're trying to, to coax him and to get him to go a certain way. And and they, they actually said to him at one point, you do realize that this is not the way that the, the politics of the matter work. And he says, well, damn the politics. It has to be this way. Uh, it doesn't matter about politics at the end of the day because we have to address this problem. You know, the politics of the matter be damned more or less. I'm kind of paraphrasing. But what he did, he put that out on his own. The BBC never aired that part of the interview. It was yeah. never that. Yeah, that's the thing, you see. He he actually, I think he got somebody else to, and he wrote it into the contract to conduct the interview, that somebody else would video the whole thing so that he would have the entire footage. And therefore, any clever editing by the BBC could be immediately counteracted. We've, we've got a military saying which goes something along the lines that any ambush once discovered can be surrounded and defeated. So if you know the ambush is going to take place, which you can be pretty damn sure of when you're being interviewed by a propagandist organisation such as the BBC, you can prepare for that and ambush their ambush, which is is kind of what he did. The other option is if you do get ambushed by surprise, the phrase in military parlance is win the firefight, fight through. 
as in you go back at them harder than they're coming at you and you don't stop until you've gone all the way through their lines and they've got nothing to come back at you with. So he did the first option, which is the the best and safest option, which is to um, fully expect to be ambushed by questioning and, and have bias editing applied to the interview. And he successfully got that real message out. And I just so happened to have that clip that I was speaking of, if you'd like for me to play it. Yeah, that'd be great. No, I removed it because some people claim they found it offensive. Um, I completely refute any allegations of anti-Semitism. And it was ludicrous when you think that the actual person I was quoting via a top cardiologist actually was um, an Israeli uh, doctor of criminology and sociology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. But the evidence you speak of, it's been fact-checked and proven to not be accurate. Your arguments have been debunked by scientists. They've been debunked by the Department for Health. Are you saying... Are you well, saying? Let's have the debate in partners. Let's have the debate. Let's have, let's have the debate. Let me bring my experts and let Hancock bring witty and valence and, and let's have that debate. They won't have it. Rather than debate it in public and rather than put out loads of tweets, why don't you take yourself off and speak to the experts at the Department for Health and let them tell you what they think one-to-one -one, so you can understand where you may have gone wrong because they are saying you are wrong. Well, I'm not wrong when I look at the public. I've been approached by hundreds of people. I've had thousands and thousands of emails uh, of support from the UK and, and around the world, and I've been put in contact with lots of doctor groups um, who are aware of the harms that the vaccine are causing. What do you think your constituents think of all this? Now they've elected a Conservative MP and you've been kicked out of the Parliamentary Party. Well, let's see what the Parliamentary Party do. If it's about talking about vaccine harms, there's very little I can do about it. It is a real issue and it's, it's growing. Awareness is growing of this issue. It's tremendously important. In fact, I can't think of anything more important. You seem to be sacrificing your political career to do this. If that's what it takes, that's, it doesn't matter about my political career. There's something seriously going wrong in this country. And quite honestly, Tony, it's been going wrong for several years and it's got to stop. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's no respect coming from that BBC interviewer at all. No. Uh, and it's, it's like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. You need to go away and rethink it. Look, anything that is in the public domain should be debated in public. There should be nothing that is being concealed or hidden or any secret information about this whole situation. But clearly there is. And I think the only real secret is the people in the Department of Health know what the, the truth is, but they are on Operation Cover My Ass to make sure as little of it as possible ever comes to light and gets put into the public domain. So Andrew Bridgen, in my view, is just about the only politician uh, that I know of that I trust that they're, they're driving things in the right direction. I mean, countries shouldn't have to overly worry about this. It should be a given that your health service uh, and your, your professionals within government, or not within government, but the civil service, are just driving things in the right direction when it comes to public health. And the politicians should be looking at policies that strengthen and enrich the country, not impoverish it, such as lockdowns, vaccines, and all the rest of the nonsense has done. I don't know if we've mentioned it on the on the podcast directly, uh, but some of the research that Ned has done into vaccinations, some of the early stuff for smallpox, I, he may have mentioned it the other day. The biggest impact, uh, because it was one of the most densely populated areas where there was lots of industry at the time, and this was in the 1800s, was Leicester. And with Andrew Bridgen being a Midlander, you know, from the region, was probably aware of his county's history and how vaccines did more harm than good in that particular area of smallpox. And it could well be that the reason he was triggered, to use a modern phrase, 
to look into vaccine injury with the mRNA gene therapy is because he's from Leicester and, and there's a history of it happening there. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the next general election, if we ever get one, so that I can vote for the, the I think it's the Reform Party he's now a member of. Is there another party that's cropped up? I haven't heard about the Reform Party. Is that yeah? Is that but it's going to be small. Is it a spinoff? It's, it, yeah, it, it's going to be small when they start. Yeah, is it another it, spinoff of the the Brexit and which was a spinoff of UKIP? I'm assuming this is another breakaway thing. Well, this is it. it. It's it's fractured. Party politics is the problem. You know, when when you've got a block vote and you've got a majority within the House, not every constituency is going to have its best interests taken into account because the whips are going to tell these politicians which way to vote, whether or not it's to the detriment of their own constituency. And and that is the problem. We need we need more and more independence, uh smaller parties, but the trouble with a smaller party is um even though they may have a massive amount of following and, and votes, they will not necessarily have a a workable majority uh, in the Houses of Parliament. Uh, and that's the issue we have. You know, I, I know that we've been talking about this for uh, for several years now, uh, and that's one of our possible solutions to this on the other side would be, a, a, you know, a, a parliament of independence, as in we've got to take the party politics out of this stuff. This has got to stop because, as you said, all it does is block people up and divide people. And I don't see... Apart from doing something like that, I don't see a way where we can start to make headway on these on these issues, because if we're not voting for people and when I say I mean people, not parties. Right. We're, we're doing this in a lot of these um, <clears throat> liberal democracies across the Western world is we're voting for parties. We're not voting for people. You guys still vote for people in the U.S. We still vote for people, albeit they belong to parties, but we're still voting for people. In places like France, places like Germany, places like the Netherlands and things, they vote for parties. This is a problem because you have to have um, you have these coalition governments that form. And I know you guys do something similar to that, but you still at the end of the day, you still vote for people. But these coalition governments that form, they end up getting maybe, uh, I don't know, what, 10 cents on the dollar to use a, a money analogy here on what they want to actually get done. And it ends up going in other directions that people don't vote for because you have to form coalitions to get all this stuff through. And it's always they're making deals. They're doing horse trading. They're saying, OK, we'll give you this. We'll give you that. We'll give you that. If you come on board with this one thing that we want to get done and you have 60 other things that get rammed through that are not what people voted for. Yeah, I mean, I think the the root of the problem is in the first past the post system that we have here in the UK, which basically means that not all constituencies have the same you know, quantity of voters within it. So they're not all equal. Some con constituencies have way more people eligible to vote in them than others. Um, so there's been an argument for a long time for proportional representation, but it would still be on the basis of voting for a party. Uh, and that that's the that's the th that's the the real issue. The um, the overwhelming majority that. Boris Johnson achieved would not have happened under a proportional representation system, but we still would have had essentially a two-party system with the Lib Dims, as I like to call them, still just, you know, whistling in the wilderness, well on the outside. Smaller parties like the Greens, again, quite underrepresented. And all of the independents, they they may well have some may have well have got seats but they still would be up against a big block vote of a massive party. Party politics needs to be outlawed. It, it, it needs to be removed. And people should stand on the basis of their suggested policies as independents. And there should be more online referendums or even paper referendums, actual going in and casting a vote on, on policies so that the country... Uh, the, the country's direction and the things it's working to are chosen by the masses, not by 600 plus people sat in Westminster, because it's it's not difficult to corrupt 600 plus people. It's very difficult to corrupt 
bribe, coerce, blackmail 60 million people. That's true. So that's true. You know, we've you've said in in recent weeks we don't need to change our systems. I disagree. We do. We do need to change our systems, especially as now in the states there's more whispering of let's all be wearing masks again because there's another bout of some kind of virus covid hadn't related heard hadn't heard that oh yeah it's 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 on twitter oh, um, okay. or well, x. x yeah x yeah x uh, and again it's just a a prelim it's just the overture to a form of lockdown or an excuse to make more mail in voting um happen so that it can be subverted and the election stolen again. It's it's part of the plan. Uh, and once you know, like I say, any ambush, once you know the ambush has been set, you can surround that ambush and defeat it. So we know that the Democrats in, in the US are probably going to try and falsify yet another election. Yeah, they have to. Uh, they and have so... The, the Republican Party, again, I'm talking in terms of two bloody parties, should be doing everything they can to make sure that it's a clean, fair fight. Um, that That's the moral high ground that needs to be taken. Well, unfortunately, my friend, I think it becomes uh, a, a dead issue, all things considered, because... At the end of it, we haven't fixed any of these problems that we had in the last election. I'm not talking necessarily about COVID. They used COVID to justify what they did. And I fully agree with you that I believe they're going to do that again, because if they're ratcheting that up, uh, you've actually got mainstream media out today saying that they've created a new health department at the federal level to help deal with people that have lingering COVID effects. Listen to this. The Biden administration is taking steps to address an ongoing problem from the COVID-19 pandemic. Our Dr. Frank McGeorge here with a closer look at exactly what they are doing. And it's so sad, but there's so many ramifications after COVID-19. There sure are, Karen and Devin. In fact, it really remains one of the biggest mysteries surrounding COVID-19. Why some people recover easily and others suffer lingering symptoms weeks or even months after they were first infected. It's estimated up to 23 million people in the U.S. are dealing with long COVID. So the White House announced it is establishing a new office within the Department of Health and Human Services to lead the federal government's response moving forward. The agency will also launch clinical trials to help find better ways to treat long COVID. So you see, they're starting to ratchet that back up, as you said. And that was the justification that they used to do the mail-in voting, the uh, the Dropbox voting, and everything else that they did. Uh, as far as that, like the, the COVID measures, you know, the social distancing. Oh, no, sorry. You can't watch the people count those votes because you have to stay socially distanced. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know... Just with the research our humble little podcast has done, we know that uh, there was not sufficient um, quality control on the production of the vaccines, which means that some of them only had 10% active ingredients. So if you had one of those, you were lucky. The other thing is when you get high levels of viral load infecting you, people have suffered from lung damage. The whole cytokine storm causing tissue damage to lungs, which of course will cause a long-term suffering from the virus. We can answer those questions that the vacuous bimbo on probably CNN was that. Uh, that was a local affiliate. I want to say that was a uh, uh, it was one of the CBS outlets or one of the yeah. mainstream spinoffs or whatever. Yeah, yeah, one of the mainstream propaganda agencies. Yeah, the questions she asked could easily be answered, but the expert there, obviously also part of the US side of Operation Cover Our Arses, will just put more fear out there and not give anything resembling the truth. So, yeah, I, I think everyone needs to be aware and vigilant for where possible chances for the opposition parties or the party in power, in your case, uh, gets to subvert the election. And with that being said, does it even matter? Does it even matter who you vote for? Even if we had legitimate all the way through and through, which I actually like your guys' system, your your election system. I like how you guys do that. I, I appreciate the fact that you keep an integrity process over that. And the public has full view and full chain of custody from the time that ballot gets 
taken at the polling station to the time it is dumped out there on the table in front of the public and counted while everybody's watching. I, I appreciate what you guys do. I, I think you guys have one of the more fair uh, systems uh, in the West. But again, does that even matter? Mm, maybe, maybe not, according to dear old Klaus. Here he is talking to Sergey Brin about, do we even need elections anymore? Do they even matter? So technology now is, and uh, digital technologies mainly have an analytical power. Now we go into a predictive power, and we have seen the first examples, and your company very much involved into it. But since the next step could be in, to go into a prescriptive uh, mode, which means um, uh, you you do not even have to have elections anymore because you can already uh, predict what uh, predict, and afterwards you can say why do we need elections? Because we know what the result will be. Can you imagine such a world? Can you imagine such a world, Mister Sergey Brin from Google? There's loaded questions. That's got a full hundred round drum magazine attached to it, hasn't it? It, it that that question is so that. loaded. Where yeah. does where does Bryn, even if Bryn wasn't already part of the problem, which Google definitely is, where would he go with that? Because what I would say to Klaus after he got up off the floor would be, yes, we do need elections. Yes, people do need to feel that the people that are putting governance over them are by their choice and not by some kind of globalist world government's decision. Predictive. Yes. Um, the algorithms got the say- that, that they Yeah, do, yeah. They, they you've got the saying, history repeats itself because nobody listened in the first place. And when you analyse recent history, you can see just how many times that is true. So whatever they're basing their algorithms that will predict who should be the next government on is flawed. It's flawed data. It's data that doesn't take into account the dumbing down of people, the misinformation given by mainstream media, not alternative media, but the misinformation and fear-mongering by mainstream media that have changed the way people think or don't think. It's stopped them from thinking. Most of them have just gone into their shell like some kind of frightened snail because they can't cope with how horrible the situation is becoming. So, no, Klaus, sorry, beat button, f*** you. It's none of your business. Who the hell are you? I mean, seriously, who is he? We're trying Why to figure should that, that out. man's opinion? <laughs> sorry? I said we're trying. We're still trying to figure that out. Bruce and I were in a, in a deep, deep rabbit hole the other day, still trying to to figure this one out. So yeah, we're working on it. Yeah. So uh, with the uh, with all this this crap that's coming out of uh, of Davos with Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, I told you the other day that I ran across something in Saudi. Do you remember we talked about the uh, the line? Do you remember we, yeah. we talked about that? Well, I ran across something else, uh, and as you can clearly see up here on screen, that is the line, right? That's the concept of, of what they the want concept, to do. That's the concept, yeah. That is the impression, concept. yeah. Yes. Well, apparently, there's more to this. There is not just this. This is only one project that they're doing. This is the parent thing that's over top of it. It's called NEOM, N-E-O-M. Anyone can go and take a look at this. Uh, and this is... A, a number of projects that they're doing. One is called The Line, and the other one is called uh, Sindala, which is a luxury island destination in the Red Sea. I'll get to that in a second. You have uh, Trojana, which is in the mountains of Saudi. And then you have this one that caught my attention called the Oxagon. And this is meant to be one of their uh, industrial cities of the future, if you will. This will feature advanced and clean industries in building a green ESG ecosystem, research and innovation, port and supply chain logistics, and of course, thriving communities. And uh, by the looks of it, from that uh-huh. artist's impression, uh-huh. obviously uh, computer generated, it looks very much like the Arabian desert and uh, the Oxagon extends out into the Persian Gulf? Kind of. This is located in the region of... uh, It's located in the Red Sea, 
uh, oh, in Northwest okay. Saudi is where it is. Uh, yeah. And they say that they're creating a new model for industry and urbanism. Oxagon is being built as a living laboratory and is part of a bigger vision where entrepreneurship and human development will chart the course of a new future. They you know what these really things... Found... Yeah, go on, go on. What these things strike me as, they are arcs. They're places to put humans in and our technology and our knowledge ahead of some kind of uh, global catastrophe. It's an interesting and way of putting it. I, I wasn't thinking about that, but I, I see your point. So whether it's man-made and accelerated, deliberately accelerated climate change, bringing about a new ice age, which of course would make that region temperate, that desert that is surrounding all of those buildings at the moment would become quite rapidly temperate if there were ice sheets moving down from the north. We're expecting a pivotal slip sometime soon as well. The planet has made polar shifts around about every 300,000 years in which the poles have swapped, according to scientists. Of course, there, there was no one around to actually see this happen or confirm it. But this is what they estimate by the way in which the Earth moves on its axis around the sun and that these things have happened. This may be away with the fairy stuff, but they look like arcs for the privileged few that are going to be allowed to survive. That is a good point. This is uh, this is Sindala. This is their luxury island destination in the Red Sea. The same region as well, oddly enough. Yeah, uh, they're they're yeah. already bro breaking ground on these things. See, they're already the moving on them. The Red Sea... I think can be, uh, although it's sort of uh, um, an enclosed sea, it's really just a big lake, but you could break out from there into the Black Sea and therefore give access to Europe and the northern continents. Whereas if it was in the Gulf, if it, yeah, because now I've, because I mentioned it, it looked like the Gulf, but it, it clearly, does, yeah. yeah, the Gulf, you, you're going to have to dig a massive sea channel right the way through Iraq and part of Turkey uh, to get to the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. So the most obvious choice would be the Red Sea in terms of civil engineering to make that connection for shipping. It's um, interesting you already have the, uh, the, the Chinese that are acquiring most of the real estate or bringing those countries into their sphere of influence, such as Egypt and, you know, of course, access to the Suez Canal. And that's part of their Belt and Road Initiative through Africa with the Russians. Yeah, and because and we're in the Middle East in this part of the conversation, the other thing that happened on Fastbook was I'd made a comment on an LBC video of Rishi Sunak talking about uh, Britain's energy plans. Uh, and I commented and said, do it then. Crank up our power. Stop outsourcing. Stop being a WEF puppet. Globalism is your your real goal, not the UK strength and stability. You are fooling only the most brainwashed and left it at that. I had one person laugh at me uh, with the, the laugh emoji and another person has liked it. The person who liked it is presenting, at least in their Facebook profile, as Lubna Kasim. The direct Arabic translation of Lubna Kasim is elegant generosity. And when I've looked at her profile, because she asked me, she said, hello, can you send me a friend request or a private message so that we can talk about something important? So I thought, I'll, I'll see who this is. This is a crypto and, ad or something. <laughs> and can you read that? Can you read what that says? I can, yeah. The group chief general counsel and company secretary of the Emirates National Bank of the UAE. Yeah. So I thought I won't dismiss that. I had a good trawl through the, the profile, which is quite sparse, but there's lots of photographs of this person who might be Lubna Kasim with uh, lots of people sat next to people at various globalist type conventions and board meetings. And so I didn't just ignore it. What I've said to her is, I could do that, but I am highly suspicious of such approach approaches on social media. I lived and worked in Abu Dhabi for nearly 10 years. If you are who your profile suggests, I would be more than happy to hear what you have to say. You send me a DM and we'll take it from there. Am I about to be 
well and truly bribed or am I about to be hacked and have my digital profile destroyed? It's quite interesting. Um, Indeed it is. One of the great things about being so suspicious is on my telephone, which is, okay, it's a telephone and I access the internet from it, but I don't do any banking on it. There's no apps on there like Apple Pay or any of those other kind of wallet um, facilities because I use cash or I use my debit card and I don't use my phone to pay for anything. So if that is a fake account um, and they're, they're, they're trying to um, access my bank details, um, they're going to have a hard job. But if it is um, the actual person from the National Bank of Dubai, I'll be more than happy to hear what they have to say. Perhaps they would offer you another job. Well, that that could be that could be the case, but I don't want to go out there. It's too hot, and you have to have a jab. So that is true. Yes, stick I, it up your candora. Yeah, I was uh, I was actually I was speaking. I, I've heard two I've heard two things on that. Uh, I've heard that that was rescinded, and I also heard that I, I've also heard your side of it too. So I've heard both sides. So I'm not sure which is which. I'm tending to believe your side is more accurate because you still know people out there. Yeah, and they were all forced into having a jab or losing their job. Yeah. Um, well, that's a shame, Marty. Um, I'm, I was actually kind of wondering, what, what do you think your social credit score has to be in order to get into this um, cutting edge luxury destination? And just to give you an idea of what they you see what they've got here to offer. They've got 86 marinas. 51 luxury retail outlets, beach clubs, three luxury hotels, a yacht club, because, you know, you have your yacht there, uh, a sports yeah. club, spa and wellness. Uh, it averages around 2,400 visitors per day by 2028. Ultra prime marina close to Europe and the Mediterranean. Advanced technology and golfing destination, because I know how much you love to play golf. Uh, enhanced livability, luxury lifestyle experience, and it's 840,000 square meters. Well, it's a yachting uh, paradise. The thing is, they've got cheap labor. You've got all the um, all the financial migrants that haven't managed to get onto a small boat uh, in Calais and get to UK. So all the rest of the financial migrates from Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, other parts of, of the Middle East, they're all there and willing to work for what amounts to about £10 um 12 euros 12 dollars a day and they've got that's it right there that's what you said that's this is this is the uh the playground for the uh the luxury crowd from yeah. south of france and southern europe yeah uh so suez which normally only carries you know big liners tankers and that kind of thing will have to be opened up and you've got that passage from europe to Saudi Arabia and the Red Sea for, um, you know, the ultra rich. Yeah. And they do make a point here, as you can see, they do make a point of here's Monte Carlo straight down to Jeddah. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, obviously Allah can't see over water, it would appear. So if they want to go drinking French wines and gambling in French casinos, it's right there. I mean, they've already got, you know, Bahrain on the other side of Saudi, which they cross the causeway on a regular basis, uh, get blind drunk, and then drive back. So, um, yeah, but what, what I was saying is they've, they've got this money, they've got this fiat currency, they've got this ability to pay tens of thousands, if not millions, of um, labourers and construction workers. They've got all that space because the the majority of the population is in you know confined to cities and towns so you've got all that other space in which they can build whatever they want and and why not and i can't see these individuals as they're talking up these these luxury places like this i can't see these individuals uh transitioning to a a, a vegan diet do you because i certainly don't those you diets are, are for us no i'm dead serious i'm dead my, serious my <laughs> as long as they've got rice lamb chicken and camel, they're pretty much happy. Although it's a, an Indian dish or Pakistani dish, the, the biryani is the favorite thing of, of Saudis or Emiratis. And a, a lot of the dinners where you sit on the floor 
uh, on cushions and all the foods out there in front of you. My mate Abdullah, he was very complimentary about the way I ate with just three fingers. So the, the first two fingers on the hand and the thumb. And so because that way I took less. Also, it's the same um, way in Morocco, I believe. Yeah. And it says in the Quran that there's an antiseptic gets produced on those three fingers, um, apparently. I haven't read the passage, but I've been told that that's the healthy way to eat and the hygienic way to eat, obviously just with the right hand, because the left hand is for other things. But Abdullah could clear acres of rice and chicken and lamb um, with his highly adapted and specialized feeding technique. And that is to use the whole hand, squeeze it into a ball and pop the whole thing in, into the mouth. And yeah, it, it was quite impressive watching just how much he could get into his face in a very short space of time. You know, it, a lot of um, Arab people in the, the richer Arab countries do suffer from abundance because the, the process of fasting during Ramadan actually does a great deal for your body and for your health if you follow the rules. And I know I've mentioned this before, or maybe I haven't. Iftar, the breaking of the fast in the evening, is supposed to be a normal size meal and seven, up to seven dates. Because believe it or not, seven dates has enough calories in it, in them, to let you survive for a, for a whole day. That's all you need. But obviously with rice, vegetables, and some meat, a normal size meal. But what tends to happen during Ramadan is the sun will go down, they'll go to prayer. After prayer, they will eat and eat and eat and eat all night, drive to work the following morning, coming down off a massive sugar rush with very little sleep, massive road accidents. I say accident, it's always someone's fault. So massive crashes and they're developing their own form of diabetes. They've got a serious obesity problem all because of abundance. So you have to ask, is necessarily having that much buying power and availability of foodstuffs that, that just don't grow there, they're all imported, is it a good thing or, or is it actually harmful when you take, um, you take self-control out of the equation. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, there was a trade deal that the uh, the EU worked with the Saudis here a while back, and one of the things we started to see across the shops here, we're starting to see, or what well, we were, not anymore, but uh, we were starting to see uh, some imported products from Saudi, and they were mostly it was it was dates. They have a whole lot of dates out there, yeah. and I started to buy them. I remember I'd I'd seen different kinds of dates that I'd never seen before, and I, I of course you know I want to try all of them, uh, and so I. I started to uh, to buy some of these things, and they're nothing like the dates that we have here. Nothing at all. Uh, they're completely different. They're full of they're full of flavor and, and sweetness and, and everything else. And and as you say, uh, a few of these things have enough calories in them that you're full pretty quickly. And I I remember I started adding them to my diet, and after about two or three of them, I was I was done. I, I was absolutely done. And I remember that you used to uh, you used to tell me that the uh, the workers that they would bring into places like the UAE they would slip into people's gardens and grab like handfuls of these things and yeah and walk they, away with not them. necessarily people's gardens but um, all of the major uh, highways in in the UAE um, they've they've had this system of planting date palms in between the central reservations and obviously. There must be a certain amount of particulate contaminant within the dates from vehicle emissions, but they're still perfectly okay to eat. Uh, and they, they belong to the municipality and local workers or the, you know, the, the, the construction workers, they would. They'd cross the road, cross three lanes, shinny up a, a palm tree, cut a big frond of uh, dates and uh, take them away. But the locals as well, in their big gardens, in their villas, have date trees, mango trees, and they would bring this stuff, you know, the fruit and dates into work uh, and share it with everybody. And when you harvest the dates, most people then put them in a covered, cool, dark place for them to go off slightly. The, the, the sugars develop inside the, the date itself and it becomes sticky. 
and that's when most people eat them. But you can eat them while they're still fibrous. That's probably a healthier, less diabetes-causing way of uh, of eating the dates. Speaking of the uh, the change in diet, uh, there is a a vegan influencer because we know how much they want to make everybody vegans. There's a vegan influencer who starved to death uh, because this is a, a supposedly a healthier way to eat because you know you don't need proteins, you don't need animal proteins, you you just need air protein. That's all you need, according to Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. A vegan raw food influencer who lived on an extreme diet of exotic fruit posted her last face or uh, Facebook Instagram was well, the same company uh, post the other day uh, Zahana Samsonova she was originally from Russia uh, and she was known as Zahana de art on social media has been on a raw plant-based diet for 10 years that consisted of fruits sunflower seed sprouts fruit smoothies and juices she was 39 years old and she would go through a practice of what was called dry fasting where she would refuse to eat or drink anything for days she also made a claim that she had not drank water in uh what was it for more than six years and instead replaced it with fruit and vegetable juices uh she died uh just last week on july 21st but this was uh this was her marty if you have a look here she was I mean, you you saw I showed you a picture of her in um, what's it in prep, and she claimed that she was the healthiest person in the world, and she just I mean you you cannot live on a diet like this. You just can't do it. It's not possible. You know, our our bodies are not meant to do this. There's certain animals which, again, like her, don't really drink. They do get all the uh, moisture that they need from their solid diet however those animals if you ate their liver it would kill you and the human diet has evolved over hundreds of thousands of years from our primate ancestors into humans as we are today and it is varied we are omnivores yes she probably could create her own proteins from the vegetables uh, and the fruits that she was eating. She was enjoying a nice big piece of watermelon there. And I'm just about to enjoy uh, an ice cream. I don't know if you can see that is this. An ice, that is an ice cream. Where'd you get yeah. that? I, that looks pretty good. The um, the ice cream van just Oh, the ice cream. The is that what I heard? My, I thought that was Reggie yeah. just barking. No, of course, no, maybe Reggie my, wanted an ice cream too. My family have brought me an ice cream. But anyway, I digress. If you don't drink enough... The salts and the other toxins and minerals that should be flushed through your system, through your kidneys uh, and so on, doesn't get flushed. And eventually, although you might not have an ounce of fat on you, and uh, we saw another picture of her before with her, her biceps tensed, she was skin and bone. I mean, yes, she had muscle, but she was largely skin and bone. That is not an image of a healthy person and the damage she's done to her own internal organs by a lack of hydration. Um, she might not feel thirsty because if, she, if she's drinking stuff like watermelon or eating watermelon, perhaps even drinking coconut water, but it's still not H2O. It's still not what you need to flush the system through. So her death to me is no surprise. There will be now a slight pause while I take the first bit of this ice cream. I have to ask, uh, what flavor is that? Because I can't really well, tell. It's it's got uh, some. It's like yellow and blue. Is it is it like a Superman ice cream or vanilla or what? Well, it's got a cinnamon it's, stick it's, on the side. I see. No, that's chocolate, mate. Oh, is that a chocolate? Um, okay, that's a chocolate. That's a flake. It's vanilla ice cream, and it's got raspberry sauce, which is the blue stuff, and hundreds and thousands, or as Eddie Murphy would call it, sprinkles. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, it's it's kind of yeah, throwing it off there. It looks really good. I I hardly eat ice cream anymore. You know how much I used to love ice cream? I, yeah. I used to. And I I just I don't eat it anymore. And when I do, I feel absolutely sick. I have changed my diet so much in the last few years since COVID. I actually since we're talking about diets and this whole vegan thing, I actually found that I was doing the opposite 
maybe it's my American rebellious streak or something, but I actually found that during COVID, I was doing the opposite. Everybody was getting takeout food and, and things. And, and I ordered a couple of times because local businesses, you know, I, I wanted to support them. Uh, and I appreciate the, uh, the, the restaurant quality and everything, you know, the food quality and stuff that they produce. And so I ordered probably the most harmless things that I could imagine. But and I gave big tips. But I did the opposite of what a lot of people did. I see people now that are extremely overweight and I ask them, hey, you know, what what's going on? You know, do you need you need to do something about um, health and fitness or something? And they say COVID. It happened to them during COVID because they just they weren't going to the office. They weren't in their routines and the gyms were closed and it was just so much easier for them to just lounge around and order takeout food or get something frozen at the uh, the shops, you know, when you could stand in line. And that was it. And they've just kind of health wise, you know, health and, and nutrition wise, they've just never recovered from it. Well, I don't want to sound like David Icke, but there seems to be something in the cosmos that is doing its best to keep me alive, despite my own best efforts. When I had my last burst ulcer, and the, the burst ulcer was due to basically use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to combat the pain and the swelling of the, the arthritis that, that has plagued me for a very long time. Um, because my blood sugars were so high and the brain feeds off sugar, it's what the brain craves. It's why we get those urges. The brain wants sugar and it's what it uses to operate. Even though I'd lost four and a half to five pints of blood with this burst ulcer, I fought through it because my blood sugars were so high. And then when COVID came along, because I'd gone down to a very low weight for me, my normal weight, I don't know what it is in pounds, but my normal weight being a, a six foot three man of, of big build was 18 stone, which according to the BMI, the body mass index, meant that I was morbidly obese. Despite the fact that I was doing karate twice a week, eighteen I was, stone, yeah, two hundred and fifty-two pounds in Church of England, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, I went down to thirteen stone, and I honestly looked ill. I looked like the woman you've just shown because I lost so much weight as I was recovering from the surgery yeah, for I my remember. knees and, yeah, and everything. So during COVID. I was on, a, I was on a, a program to bulk back up again, and I was eating pretty much whatever I want. I've now stabilized at a nice 16 stone, so I'm two, two stone lighter than I, what, than I, I usually was, and I feel, I feel good. I'm running around a stage every night uh, at the moment um, and acting and pretty much eating what I want to eat, but I have cut down on certain things, which is why I was surprised to be just handed an ice cream just then i was but, surprised um, too i'm a bit jealous to be fair because well, now the more i, I look at it i'm like I, you know i i really I wish, would love I to have one here. of those and for the benefit of the listener he is enjoying that ice cream on purpose in front of me some of the chocolate sauce because it was chocolate raspberry and some other kinds of sauce on there has now gone down the front of my infidel t-shirt so oh, um oh i'm gonna have to change in a bit otherwise i will be plagued by wasps well, we will uh, we'll go ahead and, and kick out of here a few minutes early, barring anything else. Is there any final words you'd like to impart to the listener before you toddle off for the week? Well, if I could manage to say it around the outside of this large piece of chocolate that I've just put in my mouth, I just hope everybody is well, enjoying whatever summer you're getting, because I imagine most of you are in the, in the Northern Hemisphere. And those that are in the Southern Hemisphere, you're probably enjoying a really nice autumnal sort of um yeah we got a lot of new zealanders and and a lot of a lot of australian listeners and south african as well yeah no i just hope everyone's well that they keep listening and lubna kasim if you are listening and, and and you're a genuine person please get in touch i can't wait to find out what it is you've got to tell me well my friend it has been a great conversation as always look forward to seeing you next week and break a leg at your next performance this evening well it's the last show tonight so everyone that i have to hit during the course of the show they're going to feel it tonight very well unfortunately i, I don't think klaus is going to be any of those people are they that is a big shame that's a big shame it is it is he loves the stage too it's a, it's a shame he's not going to be sharing a stage with you we'll see you next week my friend that'll do it for us for today and for this week i'd like to thank you for being here today thank you to all of the listeners everyone have a great weekend and we will see you on monday 